Our lesson from Acts chapter 3 will serve as the basis for the sermon this morning. Veni, Vidi, Vici. I came, I saw, I conquered. These were the words spoken by Julius Caesar in a letter to the Senate back in 47 AD after he had a quick and decisive victory at the Battle of Zela. Flash forward 600 years. King John III Sobieski of Poland finds himself holed up in the city of Vienna with a Turkish army surrounding him. Not knowing what to do, he leans on God and then he leads his men into battle and has a quick and decisive victory over the Turk army. As he's standing there in victory, he gives his speech. I came, I saw, and God conquered. Love it. Love the difference. But what's the difference between Julius Caesar and John III Sobieski? They're both human beings, right? Well, one, one stood in his own glory, giving himself the glory. The other one stood in God's glory, giving God all the glory. You know, this is what Satan would seek to have us do. To not have a belief in God as being our Savior and our salvation. To believe in ourselves that, like, we can stand up and do anything miraculous or good. You know what? Oftentimes, it takes somebody in their darkest, deepest hour to realize that God is the only hope that we have. It takes those experiences in our lives to give credit where credit is due to the Lord. With a healed beggar clinging to Peter and John, a crowd recognizes this healed man. As somebody that used to sit at the beautiful gate, couldn't walk, lame, begging for alms. And all of a sudden, here he is, leaping about with joy, jumping, smiling, praising the Lord. And now they're astounded. How could this man who sat at the beautiful gate now be doing all of these things? And Peter notices his crowd gathering there as this lame man clings on to him. He sees the look in their eyes and he knows what's going on and he begins to address them. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare at us as though by our own power of piety we've made this man walk? Huh. You know, it'd be easy to address this as yet another healing of God because God does so much healing. And while that's true to a point, I want to turn our attention to Peter for a moment. This is the same Peter who sought to wield a sword against those who would threaten Jesus. This is the same Peter who denies Christ three times before the rooster crows. The same Peter who we find on Easter morning at the empty tomb. The same one locked in the upper room with the disciples. But it's also the same Peter who Jesus gave the keys to the kingdom to. Wow. Think about this for a moment. Jesus gives him the keys to the kingdom. Isn't that like giving somebody the keys with Lamborghini who just wrecked their Ferrari? That's Peter. And yet Jesus, his abundant grace just flows upon Peter. And he gives him the keys to the kingdom. And now here he is at Solomon's portico with his crowd. And what's he going to do? Is he going to stand here in self-grandeur and start taking credit for this lame man walking again? I don't think so. Let's see what Peter does. He stands here before this crowd and he addresses them. He addresses this crowd 
not in his own glory, but to God. Pointing to the Lord for what the Lord has done to him. This Peter who's forgiven by Christ. Now, in fairness, as he addresses this crowd, this probably isn't the same crowd, because you notice the language in there, right? You who murdered him, you who gave him up. These probably aren't the same people that were there before Pilate, who, you know, told Pilate, take this man, we would rather have, you know, this other guy over here. This probably isn't the same crowd. But Peter addresses them as a representation of those people. Men of Israel, right? This is a people that missed out on the coming of Christ who still could not foresee that God was doing something new, that God was sending a Savior. They couldn't see this Jesus because why? He didn't look like a Savior. Not who they wanted him to be. No, they missed out. So how does Peter manage to to address this crowd? How does he manage to, to get a people who sent Jesus to a death, to believe that this Jesus healed this lame man. What he does is he returns to what they're familiar with. He returns to what they can understand, what they've understood for so long. Part of what astounds this crowd is that the healing is something new. They can't figure it out. They can't piece it together quite just yet. It's actually indicating this man's healing that God is doing something new. But these people continually miss that. And so Peter turns to the names that they recognize. The God of Jacob. God of Abraham. The God of our fathers. Right? This same God is the one who sent his servant in that very name. More importantly, then Peter points out that by faith in this name has healed this man. And then Peter does something that's very familiar to him. He calls them to repent. These are people that know about repentance or should know about repentance, right? I mean, how did they have to rectify themselves before the Lord in the past? Dumping sack, ashes on themselves, right? And, and mourning and weeping and gnashing of teeth before the Lord and recognizing that what they have done is wrong. And Peter calls them to do this. And now, brothers... I know you acted in ignorance, as did your very rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of the prophets, that this Christ would, would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that our sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come in the presence of the Lord. In other words, what he's telling them is, repent of your pre-crucifixion, your, your pre-resurrection ignorance and see that God's doing something new here. That, that Christ fulfilled what was spoken by the prophets. But as Peter speaks this, he isn't saying repent in the Old Testament sense, is he? He's saying repent. Repent so that you can be refreshed in a new sense. So you can see that God's doing something new here. So you can experience the new things that God is doing. That you can have the hope and promise of God in an alternate life. Different from what you previously lived. Peter, now let's go back. Peter's been given an opportunity to preach to a crowd about the new life that is brought about through Christ because of this lame man's healing. And he lends credibility into himself 
for this opportunity because of what Jesus has done for him and his own experiences with Jesus. As he repented and received that, that forgiveness, as Jesus handed him the keys to the kingdom. Credibility is huge when you're going to go out and proclaim the gospel. I'm reminded of McCready, the famous English actor who once had an encounter with a, with a, uh, a minister. And the minister encounters him and says, you know, I wish you would explain something to me. And McCready says, well, get on with it. You know, I don't know how I can explain anything to a minister. And the preacher says, well, what's the reason for the difference between you and me? You're appearing before crowds, huge crowds, night after night with fiction. And the crowds go wherever you go. I'm preaching the essential and unchangeable truth, and hardly anybody shows up. McCready says, well, this is quite simple. I can tell you the difference between us. I present my fiction as though it was truth. You present your truth as though it was fiction. What we believe and what we say and, and do don't always mesh together, do they? Our belief about the new ways God is doing things through the resurrection of Christ and what we say and do sometimes come into conflict. And that's where our sinful human nature comes in. When society promotes self-grandeur and accomplishments, it's easy to get up and take credit for ourselves and to shun God and to dispel Him and not to lean on Him. And we become stale and mired in the muck of old ways. And then what kind of message then are we promoting? What, are we, what kind of story are we telling? How many opportunities we miss to proclaim the gospel in our daily lives? And we aren't living in a new alternative way that God has brought about. And quite frankly, neither are those that we we're supposed to be giving the gospel to. Seeking glory for ourselves, being high and almighty and leaning on our own understanding and wisdom is like we miss the coming of Christ. We too were representatives at times of the Jewish people who sought Jesus' demise. And if we're going to go to live out the resurrection, then our lives need to start with the old familiar. Repentance. Repentance. Repent and turn back so you can be refreshed in the Lord's ways. Jesus himself spoke about repentance. He spoke of the need to repent unless one will perish. He spoke of the barren fig tree about the tree needing to be cut down due to not bearing fruit. But he also spoke about the caretaker who advocates for the tree and gives it a chance by fertilizing and nurturing it. Repentance in this sense isn't the repentance of the Old Testament times. It is not only about contrition, but it's about regeneration, renewal, refreshing. And through repentance, then, we're refreshed in the great promise of salvation that our Lord has brought about. And it's continuous with the promises God has made all throughout history. The promise is a new, a new way. Repentance keeps with the promise, but it goes far beyond a moral notion. For change, you know, it changes our outlook. That's what repentance does. In our baptisms, we're renewed. We're given a new sense of purpose and a new way to live life. Repentance then also refreshes us and helps us to affix our lives to the promise that Jesus brought about. That we see Jesus as our advocate, as our deliverer. Then we're refreshed with the realization that our Savior has come, not only for us, but for all of creation. 
And neither the tomb, nor death, nor Satan could stop Jesus. Peter's evident of that. The lame beggar experiences that and knows it. Their worlds have totally been changed. What about yours? How has Jesus changed your life? How has Jesus changed my life? What do we need to repent of today? What do we need to confess before our Lord? As we confess our sins, we're focused anew on the life-saving mission of our great shepherd, empowered once again to see the world differently. So take the purpose of the mission of Christ to the lame, to the poor, to the marginalized, to the oppressed, the lowly people who so desperately need to be broken out of those things that hold them down so that they can, like the lame beggar, jump around joyfully, telling the world, showing the world what Christ has done from them. And I pray, I pray, my friends, that we ever see those opportunities that are being presented to us in our daily lives so that we can bring Christ's healing and give the credit and glory to where it belongs, to God, our Father, to Christ the Conqueror, and to God be all the glory. Amen.